0: Nice to meet you, thank you so much for doing this. Oh yeah, no thanks <laughs> sure.
1: so much inviting me and um, I'm excited to be here.
0: Yeah, I just pinned on top your presentation if you want to click on it really quick, just so you see how the audience will interact with it and in the okay. meantime... Yeah. I'll just share really quick on Twitter that we are starting and then we'll start in in a minute if, if that's okay.
1: Yeah, yeah, sounds good.
0: Okay, Um, I'm still pinging a few people in, but at least (laughs) it's like when you share things, um, it's you don't always have access to the microphone. so It's kind of a weird situation. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, um, thank you so much for doing this. And I know people will keep, um, you know, joining uh but i think we can slowly start with introductions and Mm -hmm. then go from there and yeah meet frank frank was looking forward to this
2: (laughs) oh okay well hi frank hi uh uh, so the title says dr alfred so shall we call you uh dr Um, um, amr Or yeah
1: i mean you know whatever is easier you can just call me alfred or you can call me amrut um, Amrit is my first name, but uh, you know, up to you.
2: Okay. Hi, nice yeah. meeting you. Thank you uh, as well, I mean, uh, for coming to the club and uh, sharing with us. Very interesting uh,
1: research. No, no thanks, very, uh, thanks for here. having me. Yeah, I'm very excited. Um, do you guys usually have talks around this time? Like, it, I'm guessing it's 9 p.m. for you, right? Yeah, so...
0: um we have different time zones depending on where the speakers come from um sometimes you know when it's people from europe or middle east then we'll have Mm -hmm. like morning like 9 a.m or 12 p.m sessions and then when it's usually west coast or asia like australia then uh, we switch to this time usually so yeah i see And then also, I mean, for me, it's kind of good, like, you know, my kids are in bed, everyone had dinner and stuff. So (laughs) it's kind Mm -hmm. of relaxing. So, yeah, I think we can start. So uh, welcome everyone to Science Society. And of course, a special welcome to you, Uh, Ruth. And uh, before we start... um, let me give the audience a little bit of introduction and correct me if there's anything wrong I found. Sure. I looked at yeah, the okay. <laughs> uh, um, ID um, link, you know, from the the, the paper. So um, right,
2: right.
0: you went to, uh, you did your Bachelor in Science uh, in Physics and Astronomy at the University of Hong Kong and then um, also your master, and then you stayed for your PhD too. Um, so, and um, it's it's really interesting um, that you say it must be a really great place to, to be as a student and to learn. Um, because, you know, that's really a great sign. So, um, and yeah. we usually I uh, start with like a short interview, so um mm. if you could tell us a little bit about how did you discover this affinity or passion even for science and then also physics was it like a childhood dream you know or um, was that something that came later on in life
1: yeah when i when I was younger um i don't know I'd probably still in primary school, I'd read uh some. I'd come across some books that were related to space or just science in general and um I you know was very interested in reading a lot of science fiction by people like Carl Sagan or Arthur C Clarke so all of that um really just made me very interested especially in space but also in just finding out uh why things work you know that's pretty much physics right so um, ever since then, I've always been just very, just very curious about why 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 something happens. So I guess that that just always kept pushing me to to find out uh, the reasons for how things work. I guess.
0: Yeah, thank you. That's really great to learn that you know books were um <clears throat> kind of um forming you uh, to have this curiosity um you know uh which is uh you know it's really interesting to learn how you know the different speakers that come here how they kind of uh, realize that they have questions about um you know specific topics mm-hmm. science and so on some you know say when they went to a museum or when they spend time in nature or you know mm-hmm. whatever it is it's really interesting and um how did you then um, come to um, to work on this project? Um, was it, you know, something that kind of your supervisors guided you towards, or was it something you kind of wanted to follow? Was it easy? Was there like a lot of problems? <laughs> I don't know. Was there any back peek um, behind the curtain story?
1: Right, I, I um started this you know research on dark matter in the well second or third year of my undergrad. Um, so I joined this research group, and then uh, they they were mainly focusing on uh, using this technique of gravitational lensing, which which I'll talk about, I guess. It's the prediction by Einstein's theory, and um, they they were using this they were using this technique to kind of figure out what dark matter is since we don't really know yet and um, well you know as an undergraduate student you don't really have much choice (laughs) you just join the research group and get some experience on what's going on Uh, and then ever since I continued I, I built on what I was doing for my final year project my MPhil and then my PhD and I guess the direction we took uh, which this paper is based on, it's it's really a mix of theory, computer simulations, and observations. So um, I kind of like doing a bit more theoretical stuff, but then this project ended up being, you know, making use of all three foundations of how science is done. So um, in the end, it ended up being very nice, kind of a full round of the scientific method, I guess. Um, so it was just... Uh, one thing led to another, and then, um, well, here we are, I guess.
0: <laughs> That's interesting, uh, because, you know, it's, I don't think it's very common that physicists kind of mix up theoretical physics with um, experimental physics, or traditionally, maybe it wasn't, Yeah, but... Um, the last speaker we had also about physics topic one of them mm-hmm. also said and he was also um not the you know he was not the senior senior scientist of the project he said also that he was combining these things for the project so is it like a guy like a trend in physics now that you uh, kind of if you uh, want to have you know high impact um publications like this and work on projects like this that get this high impact kind of, you know, uh, projects that that you have to kind of nowadays combine this? Well,
1: um, you know, I wouldn't really say it's a trend, at least yet, because um, doing this kind of thing, uh, it takes some time because you because you have to, you know, uh, have some theoretical prediction, then you need to um, you know in the worst case you need to write your code to do simulations uh, and then you also need to write proposals to get observations unless you do it with existing data and well you know if you read through most papers nowadays you wouldn't really find uh, find something like that you might actually find something like that in in the past you know like maybe in the last century um, people tended to have a more uh, global view when they were doing science, but nowadays everything is so specific that People don't really uh, merge all these three things together. So when you read a paper, sometimes it's really hard to You have to read it a lot to figure out what's going on Um So I think you know sometimes things just have to align for you to be able to do all three like theory simulation and observation in one paper uh, but definitely, if you can do it, then that paper is probably going to be very impactful because it's kind of like a story, right? People can read it and understand, and and it it's probably going to have more impact because uh, whatever you find is probably going to be like a uh, the result of some solid research, I think.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, it's interesting that you say that. That you know, traditionally scientists were like more general and then became very specialized and um maybe it's i i i asked this too like maybe people that say yes to coming here and going through the (laughs) trouble of trying out a new app and a new way of presenting maybe it's people that are more open to like uh you know, gain knowledge from different things, trials Yeah, different.
1: I'd like to think so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Maybe, that's why uh, it occurs more often. But, uh, you know, in biology, if you want to, like, or neuroscience or whatever, um, if you want to publish in nature, you have to always, like people usually say, you have to cover three major things. Like, you have to have genetics, behavior, and physiology or something, you know, to get the nature paper. It's really interesting right. that that's not necessarily true for physics, but maybe there's a trend that just the publishers demand is now everywhere because I don't yeah, know. Yeah. But no, for
1: sure, uh, they, they must have some kind of, um, yeah, their own uh, way to assess what, what probably they think would create uh, the most impact amongst their readers. Um, then maybe they have some, in their head yeah but we you know we haven't been able to figure it out but uh, the only thing we've been able to figure it out at least for for nature is um, they definitely want some kind of observation it's almost impossible to get a theory only paper published Uh, definitely they definitely want some observation and then they want you to kind of link your prediction to that um, in a i suppose in a very uh kind of groundbreaking way. They don't want you to follow the uh what's normally done, I guess. But yeah, the the editors, you know, definitely have something in mind which helps them to weed out uh, and pick what they think should be published.
0: And the funny thing is it's more or less probably the opposite of what Grant committees want.
1: Oh yeah. No, <laughs> that's that's paying. exactly right.
0: <laughs> you get published really high if you somehow by some miracle got the grant approved that no grant committee usually would approve yeah yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, thank you for that and uh, you know people don't just learn about physics they will learn about how to publish <laughs> in nature yeah
1: too. I know, that's most of it <laughs> nowadays
0: <laughs> exactly so yeah so as i said um, everyone has access to the slides so if you want to go ahead and Talk about your research, and then we'll follow up with questions about your research. Uh, the status of yours. Thank you.
1: Okay, thanks, uh, Katerina. Um, I just have a couple of. I think about <clears throat> you know, you guys. If you guys can see the link, it's about I think seventeen, sixteen slides. And um, so you know, I don't know how you normally do things, but feel free to stop me or um, you know, if you have questions or want to discuss something along the way. Um, And if not, uh, I'd like to start off with, again, thanking Katarina for inviting me to give this talk and have this discussion. It's very interesting. And I always like sharing and talking with uh, people about our research. Um, Let me start off with why we infer the existence of dark matter. Right. Uh, the main focus of our research or my research the what what we do here at Hong Kong is we're trying to figure out what the nature of dark matter is. It's a, we scientists still don't understand what it is um, and we use this technique called gravitational lensing. So I'll, I'll show you what that means in a few slides. Now, if you're if you're on slide two, the. First person to predict dark matter was this guy called Fritz Zwicky. So he's a bit of a crazy guy. He was born in Bulgaria to Swiss parents, but then lived most of his life in the US. And he predicted the existence of dark matter uh, sometime in 1933. Now, how did he do this? Well, I'll explain that in the next slide. But um, Zwicky was a really eccentric guy. He was quite. Quite an odd guy. And, you know, one of the things he was famous for was for calling his colleagues spherical bastards. Because no matter how you looked at them, they remained the same. Because, you know, if you look at a sphere from any angle, it remains a sphere. Right. So he had really creative, (laughs) really creative uh, things like this to say. And, well, for the same reason, you know, a lot of people, a lot of colleagues or scientists that he used to work with, he worked mostly in Caltech. They weren't really fond of him. he had a lot of crazy ideas and you know many of them we think now laid the foundation for modern astro- astrophysics but in his time people didn't really appreciate it it's uh, pretty much like how you know Einstein never won a Nobel Prize for relativity and now we know that you know he, he should probably have won like five different Nobel prizes um, he you know some of the other things he did apart from Postulating dark matter is, you know, coining terms like supernova, which is the explosion of a star in the final stages of its life. Uh, predicting things like neutron stars; these are very dense stars, fully made, you know, fully composed of neutrons. If you're interested uh, in a nice review of part of his life, I put the link on the slide. You should take a look. It's a very interesting read. Now, I'm I'm going to slide three, to and then here I'll tell you what Zwicky actually did. So he was doing research. I think he just finished his PhD, and he was looking at images of galaxies taken through telescopes, uh, like like the one I you know the like the one like the image you're seeing here. Now, this image is taken by the Hubble Space Telescope. It's a cluster of galaxies. We we astronomers usually call it a galaxy cluster because well it's sort of a family of galaxies all uh, near each other, sort of clumped up together. So all the bluish things you see on this image, they are distant galaxies in the background. So they're they're really, really far away, billions of light years. And each dot, each single dot you see, it's not a star, it's a galaxy. And by definition, a galaxy is at least 100 million stars, uh, much like our sun. Now the faint kind of yellow blobs that you're seeing these warm orange yellow blobs they are the galaxies that that are in the galaxy cluster that Zwicky looked at and all he did was he just measured how fast these galaxies were moving you know there's a technique and then you can actually just measure this their speeds and the speed of how how fast something's moving just depends on on the gravity so and then the gravity just depends on how much mass you have, right? So back then, we the understanding was that the mass that's present, for example, in a cluster, the only contribution is from visible matter, like stars. Right? Stars stars emit light and they're the only things that have mass. Some of some of the other things that might have mass are, you know, giant clouds of dust or hydrogen gas basically every element we know in the periodic table. And when you sum up all the stars and their mass contributions, for example, in the galaxy cluster that Zwicky was looking at, he found that the speeds of the galaxies were way too high to be explained with only visible matter. Now, this created some problems in the field, and people had different reasons. Some people said, well, maybe uh, the observations are wrong. But other people did the same kind of studies and found... You know pretty much the same results and zwicky was crazy enough to propose oh you know a relatively simple idea he said what if there's extra mass in the galaxy but it's just invisible uh, if you go to slide four i have a little video there um, and he said well every galaxy and probably the entire universe is filled with some Invisible substance which doesn't interact with light, but it interacts with gravity, Uh, and he called it dark matter. Now, in the video, you see that there's this, you know, kind of faint cloud, uh, sort of like a blob of material surrounding the galaxy, the spiral galaxy, and that's how we, in the in modern science, that's how we think that dark matter is is distributed within galaxies. So, you know, it's you can see it here in this video, but it's just to show you how it looks like in reality, it wouldn't really be visible with light. But now we think that, you know, this mysterious dark matter composes about 85% of all matter in the universe. So, that's that's a significant fraction of mass which, you know, we don't really know what it is. Um it's quite it's quite crazy that we still don't know what it is. See so postulated this in 1933, right? It's almost going to be a hundred years. Uh, and what I mean by, you know, the remaining 15% of matter in the universe, it's pretty much everything you and I know of. Uh, it includes you, me, you know, computers, the chair you're sitting on, our planet, even stars. They're, they're all considered normal matter. Um, and then dark matter is completely something different. Now, if you go to slide five, the quest for dark matter well figuring out what it is has been a is one of the is at the forefront of modern physics really because it's not just important in astrophysics it's also important in particle physics pretty much the foundation of modern physics right now and if you choose to accept general relativity, general relativity is humanity's current understanding of how gravity works, right? So this is what Einstein's famous for. He predicted this in 1915. And if you accept that this theory is correct, right, that's, you don't have to, but if you do, then you need to invoke the presence of dark matter. And like I said, some of the observation, the first observation was how fast galaxies are moving. That, that That's what Zwicky did. But later in the 1970s and 80s, people also looked at how fast galaxies rotate and also how light bends around galaxies. I'll talk about that a little bit later. And, well, there's a lot of there's mounting evidence now, then that's why dark matter is considered, it's part of the current cosmological model um, of how our universe works. And once people accepted this, somewhere in the 1980s so you'll notice that you know 1980s is when people started taking it a bit more seriously so there was a 50 year gap and you know Zwicky was dead by then so because of his eccentric attitude and you know how he proposed crazy ideas people didn't really believe or take Zwicky's ideas seriously that's why he's not so popular in you know to the public if you People wouldn't really recognize his name even even in science people wouldn't really recognize his name and that's a pity because his ideas were crazy and most of them will ended up being right he was just a very creative thinker now once people accepted dark matter to exist they started thinking about candidates you know what kind of particle is dark matter this is what <laughs> particle physicists like to do they like to figure out you know what makes up everything and There's kind of three classes that you can classify the particles as, you know, just like temperature hot warm and cold and each of these classes has different candidate particles. And nowadays we think that, you know, based on astronomical observations of how our universe looks through through telescopes, we think that dark matter is probably cold. Right and Cold dark matter has a lot of candidates, even things like black holes and, again, neutron stars. But the two leading candidates are WIMPs, which are weakly interacting massive particles. So these are just massive particles that don't interact that easily. Or axions. Uh, Axions are a kind of new uh, particle. They were proposed after WIMPs. And then the difference is that they're very light. So WIMPs are massive and axions are just very, very light. And in our research, we, we, we actually focus on axionic dark matter because uh, WIMP dark matter is the current paradigm, the existing paradigm. But it has a lot of problems. What are these problems? Well, if you go to the next slide, WIMPs are a prediction of an extension of the standard model. What that means is that you know the standard model is our current understanding of all the particles and how they interact in the universe. This is sort of the holy grail for particle physicists and what people at CERN um, research on. Now, our current theories, they can't produce any particles for um, cold, dark matter. Well, there there aren't much. And WIMPs is one where you have to kind of push the boundaries and look at new physics but wimps people have been looking for them for decades now okay it's been like two decades almost and and probably and billions of dollars of funding but scientists haven't really found uh, these wimps in in you know detection experiments like at particle colliders or other sorts of experiments they haven't really detected these and you wouldn't be wrong in forming the impression if you read astronomy papers that a lot of scientists and astronomers they subscribe to the idea of wimps uh, for no real reason at all you know uh, the axion which is the, the new kind of particle it's also a prediction where you know it's a prediction from string theory so it's also a new theory that goes beyond our current understanding but for some reason they people really most people really like holding on to wimps as their preferred article um and you know what we're trying to do in our research is to say well let's look at how axionic dark matter performs and whether it can resolve some of the problems that wimps face because look we've been looking for them for decades and we haven't really found them uh it's better to you know stop hitting your head against the wall and start considering new ideas and well you know i'll be honest with you when we sent this to nature astronomy we We got a lot of pushback from one of the referees and we we think this is kind of the common reaction because what we're proposing kind of goes against the existing paradigm and people don't like that and you know that's a human reaction and you expect scientists to not really have that but apparently they do (laughs) they still get um controlled by their uh you know by their ego or whatever it's very hard to let go of your existing worldview and that's really not too surprising you really have to take a step out and, you know, uh, redefine your worldview when someone else comes and proposes a new idea. Now, if you're wondering why these particles are called axions, there it isn't some nerdy reason. But the person who proposed this was Frank Wilczek. He is the Nobel laureate in 2006, and he said that, well, look, the axion it solves a problem in physics. It didn't just solve dark matter. It, it, I mean, it wasn't just proposed for dark matter. It was proposed to solve other problems in physics. And he said, look, it solves problems in physics. It cleans up problems in physics. And he was in his kitchen and he saw this detergent lying around. I don't know if any of you have seen it, but this is a popular um, detergent. And he said, well, you know, I'm just going to name it an axion. So that, that's really where the name comes from. Most scientists don't actually know that. <laughs> now, WIMP dark matter, you know, the, it, it doesn't just have the problem of, you know, us not being able to detect it. It also has problems in astronomy. If you go to the next slide, you'll see the, one of the predictions that WIMP dark matter makes is, it says that, look, we should have a lot of neighboring galaxies around our galaxy, the Milky Way. But in observations, we, we barely see any. Now, on the left, I'm showing you an image of a of another galaxy, which is probably like how the Milky Way looks. And, uh, you know, the sun would be somewhere on the outskirts of this galaxy. And then the image on the right is actually an image of our galaxy. And that's why you see kind of the disk, right? If you've gone to a very dark place, you can see the disk of the Milky Way, in the, if you look up in the sky. And all those little boxes are the neighboring galaxies. We call them satellite galaxies because they kind of orbit our galaxy, like baby galaxies. And the models predict hundreds of them, but we really only see you know, a handful, um, 10 or less. So WIMP dark matter has a lot of problems, not just in particle physics, but also in astronomy. So all of this is really just motivation to consider a different kind of particle for dark matter. Now, if you go to the next slide, the, one of the best ways to really study dark matter is this phenomenon of gravitational lensing. So this is a prediction by Einstein, also resulting from his theory of relativity. He predicted this in, in somewhere like 1936. And it's pretty much just like how a magnifying glass works. He said that anything with mass, right, it bends the fabric of space-time so the fabric of space-time you can imagine is sort of like a grid all around us and anything with mass and that includes you and me we're all bending or you know warping this fabric of space-time now if you look at the figure on the left let's say there's a the the red background galaxy but it could really be any uh, any light source you know it could be a lamp or it can be a galaxy and then if there was nothing between you and this galaxy, you by you, I mean the telescopes on the left, um, the light would travel in a straight line and you'd just see a red dot, right? But if there's something in between, like uh, another galaxy, this blue blob that you see here with a lot of mass, it can actually bend the light rays from this background red galaxy. And what you'll see with your telescope is that panel you know, behind the red dot, where you see the blue galaxy in the center, but around it, you see what we call lensed images. So, you know, the three, I don't know if you can see, but there's three different red blobs forming a ring around this uh, galaxy in what we see with our telescopes. And then each one of these blobs is the same image of the background galaxy. So it's kind of like you're seeing four of the same thing or or three of the same thing really depending on the uh configuration so this this is really uh what lensing is right it's like a magnifying glass it focuses the light rays and the properties of these images and that's really you know just the brightness and the position of these images from our telescopes these properties of the images they tell you something about what kind of mass distribution the blue galaxy has and then the blue galaxy we call it the lensing galaxy typically uh in, in the, the terminology is lensing galaxy because it's doing the gravitational lensing and the background object you call it the a lensed image. Now on, on the right you have this animation that kind of shows you how light from really distant galaxies travels and then again get, gets bent by something in the middle. And then when it reaches you it's all very trippy and you know images start getting warped. now the reason you know this is a very good tool to study dark matter because it just probes the mass distribution in the galaxy it doesn't get affected by you know anything else It it directly tells you how much mass is in the galaxy and how it's distributed and this is very important if you want to be able to distinguish between different models of dark matter if you want to be able to say you know whether dark matter is made of wimps or axions it's very important that you're able to dis- distinguish between what happens to these lensed images that's what we do in our research now if you go to the next slide um, before i jump into what we do in our research i'm just going to show you what typical lensed images look like you know if you use the hubble space telescope it's the best telescope we have in optical uh, if you use it to look at very distant galaxies you can see that they form a, a lot of real a lot of patterns it's really like artwork you know it's not <laughs> it's it's just a lot of a lot of unique patterns you see the einstein rings which are these blue rings around the yellow orange lensing galaxy so the yellow orange galaxy is you know it would be the blue galaxy in the previous schematic it's clo- it's much closer to us and then the blue arcs you see around some of them partial, some of them complete. We call them Einstein rings, and they are the lensed images of something much more distant, something much behind the yellow galaxy. And they also form things like Einstein crosses, these four lensed images. These guys are more religious. They form a very symmetric pattern. You see these four glowing points of light surrounding the lensing galaxy. But you also have other configurations, right? You have a you have a whole host of different configurations that can really form uh, how these lensed images can form. Now, if you go to the uh, next slide, I, I guess that's slide 10. I'm sorry, some of the slides, the page number is missing. But we're on slide 10. And apart from the fact that we don't know what dark matter is, astronomy also faced this problem for over two decades uh, called lensing anomalies. And well, as the words suggest, these are just anomalies in, in lensing, particularly lensing of quasars. Now, if you don't know what a quasar is, it's just a distant galaxy. It's a very, very far away galaxy, and it's a very bright source. Of, you know, it's very, very bright. It looks like a point. And people call this a quasar because it's a quasi star. It looks like a star, right? Stars look like Tiny bright points when you look through telescopes. Now, when people make what you call lens models, that's simply when people estimate the mass distribution of the lensing galaxies. Um, for example, you're seeing four different images of different galaxies, and at the center, that's where the lensing galaxy is. And what surrounds it is the lensed images. So you can see very beautiful, you know, these spectacular images. It's, like, it's incredible. Um, those are the lensed images and then when people make models using wimps or wimp dark matter they find that they can't really reproduce the observed brightnesses of these images so that's a problem in science when you have a model your goal is to be able to predict some kind of phenomenon that's happening in nature and when you take this to the next level you raise the bar and you know go to the next slide you use observations in the radio wavelength so in astronomy this means that your images are just you're able to get much higher resolution images so you see things more clearly people can people find well scientists find that they can't reproduce the positions of these lensed images as well so in, in the end what people find is that look we can't reproduce anything that we see we can't reproduce the brightnesses of the lensed images and we can't reproduce the positions of the lens images and the question we ask is this is something we do for the first time that hasn't been done before we ask whether dark matter that's composed of axions can resolve this problem can we get rid of these lensing anomalies if we consider dark matter as axions instead of wimps now if you see on the figure to the left that's an example of how radio telescopes look like there's you know this one is called a vla it's in new mexico and i don't know how many of you've watched the movie contact but it's based on a book by carl sagan the greatest astronomer to ever live um, in the movie they actually go to the vla and then you can see even on the even on their poster um, they're at the vla it's a very very um, really nice place and well if you haven't watched this movie you probably should <laughs> It's a very, it's a very good movie, and um, won a lot of awards, I think. And really, you should, you should just check out the uh, books or TV show Cosmos done by Carl Sagan. It's the the book is the best best selling science book ever, even now. It's called Cosmos. Um, right. And then so anyway, that that was just a detour. But basically, what scientists find is that they can't reproduce observations of lensed images. Now, in our work, we consider axionic dark matter, but it's also called wave dark matter. And the reason for this is, like I said, WIMPs are very heavy and axions are very light. That's the difference. That's the main difference between them. And light particles like axions on very large scales, they have wave-like properties. What do I mean by that? Well, they literally behave like waves on a beach, right? If you, you know, or like ripples on a pond, they undergo a lot of interference. Like when you have two ripples in a pond, the waves merge together. There's constructive and destructive interference. Um, like you can see on the plot on the right, it's a cover, cover photo from nature physics in 2014, where one of our collaborators for the first time did simulations of how wave dark matter should look like. And they got these very interesting patterns. You can see that, you know, ar- the image shows two galaxies glowing in yellow, but r- around them you see these really artistic patterns of um, interference patterns between the uh, between the constituent particles. Now, these patterns are something very, very unique, and it hasn't been studied before. And in our research, we ask, you know, can these patterns? And these patterns correspond to uh, changes in density. Right. They're sort of like blobs of mass, kind of like granules or kind of like grains, grains of sand. And what we ask is, can these, you know, can wave dark matter really reproduce uh, lensing observations? Can it account for what we see in lensing? Now, our research uh, got published about a month ago, I guess a bit more than a month ago, and we were very happy because it got picked up by a lot of news articles. More, you know, there were about fifty articles written on it, and I think on YouTube there were uh, at least it reached about four or five million people because there were multiple science educational channels which made videos about it. So you probably, you know, you could probably check those out, or you can ask me for the links because those people explain the stuff really well. Um, I actually wanted to watch those videos and read these articles instead of my own paper. <laughs> because they wrote it so well and it was very interesting for anyone to really read. And what we find is that these fluctuations in dark matter, well, predicted by wave dark matter, it actually can reproduce lensing observations. If you go to uh, slide 14, um, this is sort of a schematic that I made using a sort of like a a 3D graphic software just to illustrate What happens. Uh, On the left is the prediction by WIMPs, right? WIMPs predict a very smooth mass distribution. By smooth, I mean there's no kinks or bumps in the mass distribution. It's a very smooth, um, you know, it's a very big dip uh, where most of the mass is. And then here, the object is a galaxy. And behind this, there's another galaxy, a very bright object, a quasar, if you will. And then the light rays from that they bend around this galaxy like what happens in lensing and they reach us on earth right and what we see with our telescopes is we have to project the images back which is shown by these dashed lines and what you might find is that you know one of the images is smaller or less bright than the other one right and then you'd see different configurations like you saw in the slides before now, in wave dark matter, if you look at the plot on the right, the mass distribution isn't smooth, right? Like what I showed before, it predicts a lot of fluctuating, uh, you know, a density pattern because of the interference between waves, and then so you can see how chaotic the mass distribution gets. There's all sorts of bumps and and peaks, uh, and then the light, so it doesn't follow a straight line. It start a sort of Follows a very chaotic path, and it bends and wiggles. And when it finally reaches Earth, what we find is that sometimes the lensed images they can swap in brightness. Like you might find now that the left image is brighter or bigger than the image on the right, and this is very important because this means now you can use lensing observations to kind of distinguish between uh, between different models of dark matter. And if you go to the next slide, slide 15, um, this is just one of the predictions we make. And the leftmost panel is how you know images from the WIMP dark matter model would look. And then the two panels, you know, the central panel and the right panel, they're different versions of images that you might find if you use wave dark matter. So you can see how things are smooth and calm and nothing's happening in the WIMP dark matter model. But when you use wave dark matter, things start to get crazy. And you get all sorts of these wavy patterns um, that you can see. And these produce very, very interesting uh, phenomena. Uh, if you go to the next slide, slide 16, we make use of this. We, find, we first find that in our paper that the general predictions of wave dark matter are in good agreement with what lensing observations see, meaning that You can really reproduce the lensing anomalies but we want to raise the bar right when you're doing science you want to test your idea as stringently as possible so that you know that it's right so what we do is we do a more specific test by looking at one particular object this is a very interesting object that was seen in radio and it showed both kinds of lensing anomalies basically people couldn't predict the brightness or the position and then the object that's being lensed—it's kind of a—it's a, a quasar as well. And if you look at the plot on the right, the center of the galaxy, what we call the optical core, is what you'd see with the, the Hubble Space Telescope, for example. And then the two really, you know, spectacular jets that you see here—very, very beautiful jets—you uh, only see them in the radio wavelength. So you need multi-wavelength observations to really get the full picture. And this kind of object, you know, with a central core and two radio jets was being lensed and it was showing all these anomalies. And then what we did was we asked, hey, look, if we can use wave dark matter, can we reproduce the observations? And well, the main result in our paper is that we find out that we can. So, you know, decades long problem in astronomy, we find that wave dark matter probably can solve this. Uh, and that's very interesting because. You know, like I said, the WIMP paradigm, um, people have been holding it very close to their heart. It's very hard to get people to accept new ideas, even if they're scientists. And, you know, they're supposed to have an open mind and look at ideas clearly, but, well, that's life, right? Um, If you go to slide 17, and that's my last slide, (laughs) we, uh, you know, the conclusion is that we find that wave dark matter can resolve these lensing anomalies. And does that really tilt the balance towards axions? Well, we need to do a lot more work to really make a claim like that. But it definitely puts axions on you know the same standing. And at least when it comes to lensing, it, put, it puts axions on a higher pedal stool because they can really get rid of these anomalies that have bugged physicists and astronomers for decades. Uh, we have a lot of stuff that we plan to do in the future using large-scale, you know, cosmological simulations of galaxies, and this these need to be done with supercomputers, um, and this will hopefully give us a, a better idea of what what's going on, uh, and and shed some light on dark matter. Um, and that's the uh, that's really the end of my talk. I have more slides as backup if you guys have questions, but that's really the uh, end of my talk. So thanks.
0: Oh, thank you for really this amazing talk. Um, you explained this really so um, that even I could understand. <laughs> at, at, at least I think I understood. <laughs> like you left me thinking, "Oh, cool! I know
1: I'm complicated physics
0: that. now." <laughs> so, yeah, thank you. No, and uh, it was also beautiful. And um, yeah. So, and also Bob um, and other people say that, yeah. In the chat, yeah, you are. Yeah, I just saw are. the chat. Yeah,
1: thanks. <laughs> thanks a lot. <laughs> um, you know, I'm hoping you guys learned something. And you know, if you guys have any questions, yeah.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, Frank, do you want to go ahead? Abyss wants to join. We have a few people. So if you have a little bit of time left, uh, we would for sure ask questions. Thank you.
2: Yeah, sure. Yeah, thanks, you know, and Thanks for... Uh... A I'm, I'm for this, uh, yes. you know, treat for you know the the, the you know, oh, for, for, for all that uh, heads of mind, heart for science. <laughs> this is uh, amazing. You know, look at the through the you know the author's eye. The I have a uh, uh, just basic questions to understand the. Uh, uh, there is this lensing the the Einstein ring that uh, uh, you, you you briefly mentioned that there it could could you know, uh, for various, uh, for reasons that they uh, can project uh, like, like two, three, and more, right? More, yes. and all, all, yeah. also with these um, an- anomalies. Yeah. Could you yeah. uh, go into a little bit more, uh, you know, to uh, shed lights, uh, you know, uh, what? what uh, so I assume that the slice number, uh, there is this. Draw, drawing that you mentioned, you did with the software that uh, the right one. Yeah, slide fourteen. The... Yeah. Fourteen. Yeah, there's no yeah. number. Okay, fourteen. So, uh, yeah, there there must be some connection with this. You know, uh, the, the 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 front the foreground uh, galaxy somehow. I mean, yeah. warping. I mean, the model. Uh, this 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 is why you can put a finger on. You know, the the differentiated models. Right. It, yeah. Is it related? Huh
1: yeah 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 no you're you're right um that that's 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 really why we can distinguish between the uh different dark matter models if you're if you're looking at slide fourteen um you know you you can see that on the on the left the prediction from the wimp dark matter it's very smooth uh the you know what this grid is- sh- trying to show is the fabric of space time and this kind of bump that the galaxy is making it's very smooth it's like you put something heavy on your mattress or something like that right it kind of pulls it down and that makes a set of predictions for what we see with telescopes it tells you how bright and where the lensed images should be and then you compare with what you see with telescopes now the same thing happens with the wave dark matter but as you can see it's the the fabric becomes very um messy right very there's a lot of stuff going on there because of all these density patterns Uh, predicted in wave dark matter and then because of that naturally your predicted brightnesses and positions of where you expect the lensed images to be would be different and because of this difference and that's what makes this whole idea interesting because if you can't test it then it's boring because if you can't test it then you can't do science right and this is interesting because it makes these testable predictions and then you, all you need to do is look through your telescopes and see what kind of brightnesses and where you're seeing your lensed images, and then you make this kind of model for your foreground galaxy, and you, all you, all you need to see is, well, can I predict the brightnesses? Can I predict the positions? And then that's why you know it's a very relatively simple test, really, um, that a simple or rather, you know, I should use the word clean. It's a very clean test because there isn't a lot of uncertainty. Um, there's some, but there isn't a lot of uncertainty in 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 your models, so it really lets you rule out or guides you towards new uh, ideas for dark matter.
2: That's cool. So the so far the um, from the observation that uh, uh, over I mean outstanding is are those two anomalies that you mentioned the the brightness and positions yes. are there others you know uh, so how how like how, how easy these uh, so uh, so uh, as you y- did, did you ma- mention that uh, uh, the wave model of yours that I- explain um, it, it, it included I mean it, it, it's a super it's a larger set than, than the than the uh, wimps the uh, explain all it, it can and also uh, explain more did, did you did you mention that or Came from
1: now. Yeah, you know, you're asking really good questions. Can I can I know if you're like a, a astronomer? <laughs> no, I, I'm, or...
2: a, I'm also a researcher, I have to say, but uh, but uh, yeah, but am uh, uh, more on the engineering, like simple systems. I work with. Ah, uh, I see. I see. I, no, no, these I, are really good.
1: Uh huh. Thank you. Yeah. No, these are really good questions. So you know, thanks for asking. Um, yeah. So the the main anomalies are the brightness and position. That's what's been lying around in astronomy for for about 20 years uh, which people have been struggling with but you know it's interesting that you ask this because there's more recent observations well because of advances in engineering and technology we're able to make better observations right more precise observations like the launch of the jwst the james webb space telescope and what we're finding is that uh, not only are the brightnesses and positions uh, anomalous but there's also other kinds of odd behaviors that uh lensing systems depict sometimes we find that some of the images completely disappear you know that so there there's no model that predicts well there are some models but they don't really you don't really expect a lensed image to completely disappear it's, it's as if someone kind of put some sort of shield between you and the galaxy suddenly and that's that's very um that's very odd you know there's been there's been some papers that suggest that maybe this is uh related to aliens or something like that Uh, it's very interesting so some of the images really disappear and we call these transient events because well because they're transient they're short-lived in time right and they, they, and then you can only see it because now we have more frequent and better observations that really lets you see this but there's also you know that their images disappear but there's also things called time delay anomalies where the light arriving from these lensed images there there can be a delay you know between each image not all of the images arrive at the same time so sometimes you might see one image one lensed image out of four, and then you'd have to wait like ten years to see the next one, simply because the uh, the path taken by the light rays is different, and these these are called time delay anomalies, and no one's really looked at them <laughs> uh, because it's a very very new thing. So that's also something we hope to to look at, and then you know put wave dark matter to uh, to the test and ask uh, can it can it explain these new anomalies we're finding as well? Yeah.
2: Wow, that's really uh, something that i uh, looking forward, uh, worthy look, looking forward to. I, I do think this, I think this is Nobel. <laughs> there, there's potentially, you know, very rich uh, virgin land rights. For, well, for you nation. know,
1: I'm, I'm, I'm very glad you, you think so. Um, it, it really depends on, you know, how the future goes, like what kind of work we do, uh, following up to our nature paper, following up to our research to, Uh, you know, it's all about convincing yourself and other people, you know, scientists and everyone else that this is uh, indeed a better model or this, you know, wave dark matter is a correct description of dark matter. So, and to do that, we need to do more tests, you know, look at more observations, different lens systems, and every single time we need to ask, can wave dark matter explain these? And, you know, in the, in the coming year, we're planning to do this kinds of tests on more systems and we've already done a test on another system one of it's a supernova that's being gravitationally lensed and we found that in that system as well wave dark matter can can explain the data so you know there's no need there's no a priori reason for it to explain the data in that different system because they're completely independent systems the fact that the predictions kind of match is very very interesting and that makes us even want to try it on more systems to really see uh, what's going on. So definitely, you know, understanding the nature of dark matter is at the forefront of physics. Uh, if you can actually do it, the person who does it is going to you know, not win one Nobel. You might end up winning like five Nobels. <laughs> who knows?
2: That's so cool. Uh, I'll uh, yield my mic. Uh, I have more questions if there's more time. uh yeah, and so I'll come back.
1: Yeah, Katarina? Yeah, thanks yeah. so much for the uh, nice questions, Frank.
2: Yeah thanks so so I'll follow you yeah hope uh, you know we can see each other offline yeah
0: <laughs> yeah thank you so much for the questions uh it was really interesting to listen to um and um Kirko do you want to go next yeah yeah
3: I do and this is crazy how uh the conversation just went uh between uh you and Frank uh because it goes like right into my question uh, I know nothing about any of this, right? But yeah. well at least from what I was like understanding, like and this is I guess let me just get the question. So if let's let's posit that uh dark matter is kind of does have like a, a wave type of property. Mm-hmm. And I was just thinking like you know like how light moves differently uh through like a medium like water than it does yeah. like through normal space. Um, so I was just wondering like because if let's say if you were to to uh, vibrate the container with the water, um, like the image kind of like looks a little weird too. So is it possible? Cause you also just mentioned like how the, there's kind of like a period sometimes in which you can see the effect of the Lindsay. Um So I was kind of wondering, is that, could that possibly be contributed to like large scale movements of dark matter? Cause like um, you show some like a variety of images, right? Where like, uh, the one in the the first slide of your uh, presentation, and then I think it's like slide fourteen where it's got like mm, yeah. the uh, the smooth version versus like kind of the the more uh, fluid version. Mm. Uh, so like my my brain how it kind of thinks about this is like uh, if there's like a, a gravitational point, and like, let's say dark matter is like affected by gravity equally as like normal matter, yeah. yeah, then it may have like the the, the uh, somewhere for a higher likelihood of like forming circular structures if the the uh, the um, the force is acting in like one direction from like tor- from itself towards all directions. Uh, yeah. But then like it would also make sense that if there's different amounts of it uh, mm-hmm. of, of like dark matter in different places, that like there could be like a higher concentration or more coming from certain directions. But you would think over time that would like smoothing out, like just do mm-hmm. like the nature of like gravity and like particles moving and whatnot. Yeah. But like if it's a wave, then the image would like kind of not always be the same or it may not look at all like what it looked like before. So when you were saying like, I guess my question is this. It has different situations where you look at an image and the next time you look at it, you know, it's the same spot, but the image itself is different from the actual lensing. If that makes
1: sense. Yeah, no, uh, we, you know, what an incredible question. Yeah, <laughs> that was a, you have a really, that was a really nice way of putting it uh, and how, you know, how lensing happens. It's exactly like what you have said. I mean, that analogy used of kind of water and then the refraction and then different distributions of dark matter affecting the images. That's exactly what happens. Um, that's one way to model it, and and that's that's really what happens. And yeah, when we look at more recent observations, part of some of the projects that I'm that I'm on, some collaborations that take uh, that make observations with the Hubble Space Telescope, we find that yeah, you look at the same spot, you're looking at a lensed image, and uh, one year it's something, and then the next year it's something else, right? So it, it's changed, and. This is something we don't really see before because we'll, we just didn't have frequent observations of the same thing. To see this, you kind of need to look at the same thing. And now the understanding is probably if we made more observations, uh, we'd find out that you know these lensed regions, you know, regions where lensing happens, kind of lights up like a Christmas tree as things blinking in and out of existence. Uh, and there's a lot of hypotheses that have been proposed by people uh, to explain this kind of thing some of which say that yeah it depends on the nature of dark matter you know how it's distributed uh, like different amounts of dark matter through the galaxy uh, that can cause these variations but the, these are very new things pe- it hasn't been you know there's no satisfactory explanation yet really uh, and we mostly see this in galaxy clusters so um, galaxy clusters are massive massive lenses they're very the most massive structures we know in the universe and we're only starting to appreciate this better with observations uh from new telescopes like the uh James Webb Space Telescope uh, and you know people are only starting to realize the um the really odd things happening it's it's actually incredible um you know, i i hope that answers your uh question
3: and this is amazing. I'm so glad I saw this one
1: today. <laughs> well, thank you so much. That you know, that makes my day to hear that. That's that's the kind of reaction I want from my audience, right? <laughs> you know, you you should um uh join in our on our research, you know. I, I really like how you how you phrased your question and uh I could I could almost see how you were visualizing uh how the whole dark matter and lensing process is happening. It's it's very nice to hear it uh from someone i think you said you don't work in uh lensing or astronomy right yeah i mean i've never taken a physics
3: course before so like i just watch a lot of youtube
1: (laughs) well yeah i I do the same you know teaching is really (laughs) the quality of teachings dropped a lot but anyway thanks so much for that for that question it was very nice to hear
0: Yeah, thank you, um, Mr. Ali. Did you want to ask a question?
4: Mm-hmm. Yes, thanks, Katrina, and also thanks, uh, Amros, uh, for a very interesting talk and outstanding achievements. Um, I have three quick questions, and I was wondering if you could address them. Uh, the first is about uncertainty in your models um so i would like to know uh, what are the sources of those uncertainties and and have you managed that if if you considered
1: um but, so by uncertainties you mean kind of uncertainties in the in the model yes yeah okay um that you know you're <laughs> that's a good question so what we did was in lensing for your lens model right? your Your model for the mass distribution of the galaxy Um, the uncertainties arise from what we call a degeneracy so you know the parameters that you use to describe the mass in a galaxy it's it's always a model right we don't actually know the the real distribution of a galaxy you always humans always have to use some kind of analytical estimate um the these parameters you know things like ellipticity or the the amount of mass you have or even the position of your mass model these can all vary and you can actually have multiple models that produce the same results so there's so because of that you know you can imagine there will be a lot of uncertainty because like 10 different models give you the same results then you don't know which one to pick there is no reason to pick one over the other so to explore this level you know of how how many models you have that can produce the same data or the, the tolerance or the error in your lens model. We use something called a MCMC sampling. So it's a statistical technique. It's called a Monte Carlo Markov chain method where you kind of do like a random distribution of your model parameters. And then you see, you know, what kind of tolerances you have in your model. Uh, yeah
4: i honestly i was thinking of uh, doing high throughput monte carlo with machine learning yeah. to find the optimum case for that tel- uh, tolerance do you agree with right. me on that
1: yeah yeah no. so uh, you know monte carlo is the the way to explore this and then so we do the mcmc for the smooth model and for the wave dark matter the way we actually make the models is using random fluctuations it's like a, a gaussian random field that's what we call it so we haven't been able to use MCMC for wave dark matter because we don't really know how to do it because the uh, fluctuations are random and you know we're not really sure yet what the framework would be if you wanted to approach it uh, with MCMC and then of course we haven't done any work with uh, AI or machine learning with this aspect but it's it's definitely becoming more popular because, you know, we're having more and more telescopes and the amounts of data we have is in the terabytes. So people can't do it anymore. Individual people can't do it anymore. You can't use undergraduate students anymore to to, to go through the data. So I think it's definitely the future, you know, to use machine learning as well as these kinds of uh, statistical methods uh, like MCMC.
4: Okay, great, thanks. And my second question is about the uh, magnetic uh, and uh, anomalous, anomalous, uh, anomalous. So, we uh, have you also um, thought about the considering this magnetic effects in the model?
1: Um, so, we don't typically when people do lensing or, or make lens models, they don't consider any electromagnetic effects. And then the reason is because that that's why I was saying lensing is a very nice probe of dark matter because it just traces the path of gravity. It doesn't actually care about any of these electromagnetic interactions. And so, you know, it's the main influence is from gravity. But yeah, I actually went to a conference in Spain last week and there was this guy there where they were exploring uh, some aspect of how you know light behaves like the the polarization of light, and um, they were trying to say that uh, depending on the on the polarized depending on how how polarized your light is, you might be able to distinguish between different models of dark matter, and so this is related to the you know polarization is related to the magnetic field, so there might be something there, but uh, I just don't know because it's uh, uh it hasn't really been considered before.
4: Yeah, because of the the way uh, the wavy, uh, Corona you have there, um, uh, I thought we if we have magnetic field in the galaxy, so they may they may be able to bend the light, and we get different patterns uh, for those waves. Uh, that's the reason I thought it it may uh, affect you know the final uh, pattern you get in your simulations.
1: Right. Yeah, so you know, uh, we, in our simulations, we think that the uh, gravity is what would trace the path of the lensed images, uh, because we aren't looking at the polarization. So the uh, you know the electromagnetic effects wouldn't really uh, have have a role. We think, uh, but maybe that's something to consider. Maybe that's something to think about. Uh, we haven't really thought about it yet. Thanks a lot. And my last question is about the pattern. Have you thought also about the
4: finding specific patterns for those waves and see what uh, type of patterns they follow? And by changing, for example, uh, going from one galaxy to the other or by changing the char- uh, char- uh, characteristics of the uh, lens, um, you know, galaxies, uh, how these patterns uh, can change? Um, yeah,
1: no, right. No, that's another incredible question. It's a very good question scientific question and uh yeah we're looking at you know what kind of patterns these these galaxies make um uh, and what kind of density patterns these galaxies make uh like one of the examples in in slide 14 that's just one example and you know in this paper we've only done one test uh, of this sp- of a specific galaxy we looked at the general you know sets of patterns that are made but we also look at only one specific galaxy and then we're working on another paper now where we look at another specific galaxy so there there'd be a that one would have a different pattern uh but that's that's really how you need to do it to uh figure out whether wave dark matter is the uh better model so so definitely you know looking for these patterns and understanding how they change is is future work that's that's what needs to be done yeah
4: yeah thanks a lot um uh, i think if we have yeah definitely in the future we may be able to develop some mathematical equation taking account all these you know uh, features as input parameters that can give us some predictions without doing a lot of you know expensive models uh yeah, no, I'd al- be,
1: you know i'd be happy to talk to you about that uh, later you can always uh, reach out to me uh, through email or something like that
4: sure um, i will follow yeah, you and then we'll be in touch with you thanks a lot uh Great. yeah thanks
1: yeah, no worries. Thank you, thank you.
4: Thanks, thanks, Katrina.
0: Yeah, thanks for your questions. Um, Abyss, do you want to go ahead?
5: Thanks, Kat. Um, thanks, Armut. This is actually really groundbreaking and sort of exciting to see that Axions are starting to take um, more prestige compared to WIMS, I think. Can you
3: guys hear them?
1: Uh, it's very faint. Um, I can hear a little okay. bit. Can you hear me now? Uh yeah, it's slightly better.
5: Oh, okay. Yeah. Um so what I was saying was that it's good to see that axions are taking precedence compared to uh WIMS, which is sort of like I think, um the ex- at least like as far as I know, the experimental settings to detect WIMS is kind of repurposing neutro- neutrino detectors. So it's really nice and exciting to see that. Um your work and, and essentially you know where you're gonna go with this, um. So I do have um, I do have a lot of questions, but I'm just gonna ask two for yeah. starters, and then um if we if time permits I'll ask more. So the first one is that I guess Kirko actually asked this question. Mine is sort of related to the dark matter, dark matter halo. So do you see some kind of asymmetric gravitation due to this wave nature that you um, kind of simulated? Or do you even expect to have asymmetric gravitation because of the wave nature of axions?
1: Uh, yeah, thanks Thanks for the uh, question. And um, well, that, that's, that's what we see when we make these wave dark matter models because of all these density patterns you know, from the interference um, of, of the ultralight particles, they get all these patterns and those patterns are really just, um, asymmetries in gravitation. Uh, they're, they're, they're not a smooth gravitational pull, but, you know, all sorts of gravitational pulls from different directions. Uh, and then that's really why we see these variations to the lensed images and all these patterns. So, so it is, you know, all sorts, it's a very asymmetrical, um, thing that's going on.
5: I see. And and also, I think uh, in the slide that you have not discussed, sort of like I think the uh, uh, appendix slide, slide 22, if I'm not mistaken, Mm -hmm. um, your model is actually sensitive to stellar concentration. So I'm just wondering, Mm -hmm. um, does it depend on the type of star, if it's like main sequence, or if you have a heavier star-like formations, um, sort of remnant stars like neutrino uh, neutrino, i mean uh, neutron stars, white dwarfs, or even um sort of rogue black holes for that matter
1: well the, you know you guys are amazing with all these crazy good questions <laughs> um, yes, so it is sensitive to the amount of stars in your lensing galaxy, but what it's sensitive to is not the type of star it's sensitive to the total mass of stars or or rather the distribution of the stars like uh, how they're how they're placed in the galaxy and that determines some of the properties of these lensed images but i think it's interesting that you bring up neutron stars and black holes because i haven't talked about that but that, that's a different phenomenon called micro lensing where they create uh, they're not able to make changes to the positions of images but they're able to change make changes to the brightnesses and depending on the mass of the object and then you know neutron stars, black holes, or normal stars—they have different masses. Depending on the mass, the amount of amplification in the brightness you'd see is different. And that's what these uh, microlensing astronomers do. They look at these microlensing observations. They're just light curves, and they say that look—if if it's a neutron star, can we explain it? If it's a black hole, can we explain it? And then they they rule out the diff- potential objects. Um, of microlensing people even you know consider wormholes wormholes are also a prediction of general relativity also we although we see that in sci-fi all the time it's a it's a real prediction as well so you know uh, you can definitely constrain the type of object but with a specific kind of lensing observation these these are microlensing observations
5: i see that actually does make sense and yeah the last one is just not sort of a comment, not question, but I'm really glad that MCMCs are also used in, uh, in your work. Uh, I've used mm-hmm. it before, but more like in biomedical imaging, but mm-hmm. um, it's kind of fascinating. But yeah, I'll pass the mic to the next person so we thank have you, more you. people Thanks on so stage and I'll ask yeah. question, more questions later. Thanks. Uh, thank Kat, us. back to you.
0: Yeah, I wanted to also check in with you, Amruth, how much time you still have. Um,
1: oh, no, I'm happy to take questions all day long.
0: Oh really? Okay, you're oh, perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, um, I
1: mean, that's the fun uh, in doing science, right? <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, that's true. Uh, Doctor Brown, uh, did you have a question? Please go ahead.
1: Yes,
6: I did. But first of all, Amrit, that was a really great, uh, I guess, talk. Um, I'm surprised that I was able to follow it as closely as I was, but I, I learned a lot, and I think it was really great work. Thank you. Um, thank you. I'm
1: really
6: I do have, th- I do have two questions. The first one I had already asked in the chat, but I wanted to see if you could. Um, add any bit more i'm kind of just curious as to generally just the peer review process specifically when it comes to like really complex crazy physics like this like i know in the slides you have shown you had like some models that you had done where you're just comparing the simulated work to like actuals and like obviously because they they um align then you're kind of suggesting you're in the right direction so with the peer review process is it just a matter of someone just reviewing your code or actually just running it and trying to like replicate it or just like what 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 would that actually look like
1: yeah so what actually happens in the peer review process they don't actually tell us because all we get is the comments from the referees so we have to make the code available right so that uh people can replicate what we do and including the referees and then so nature especially they make they pick three referees so that's a lot more than the typical journals where you know sometimes it can just be one referee and then I from what I know I don't think that referees ever do a full replication of your results Uh, more so now than you know before simply because uh, it takes too much time and then referees don't actually get paid so it's sort of like community service. Really, you can just reject any referee request because you don't get anything out of it except helping the community, right? So they usually referees are also people doing research, and they really don't have the time to fully replicate someone else's study. And also, uh, you know, if it's a simulation, they might not have the, the the funding or sometimes the equipment. So what they usually do is, and then that's why it's important to get senior, expert expert referees in the field. Um, Because all they look at is, you know, they look at it and then based on their understanding, they think they look if it makes sense. Uh, They look at the other literatures we cite and then they try to form a coherent picture uh, and then assess how reasonable it is. Some of them might do use the code to test, do some basic tests. Uh, But I doubt anyone ever does a full replication. So that's why, you know, because our work is the first of its kind. Now we need to wait to see what other people do. And uh, we also need to do follow-up work uh, from our end as well.
6: Awesome. Thank you. That made sense. And then the second and last question that I have, while not very specific to what you had just shared, kind of just something I wanted to ask just because you're someone who works on like the field of gravity and specifically dark matter. Um, I'm not an astrophysicist, by the way. I'm an engineer, but I'm very interested in all this stuff. Um, One thought that I, I, I had when I was kind of just looking into the conceptual, the conception of dark matter, what observations it was that kind of informed it being thought of in like the subsequent work. Um, in kind of the field of engineering that I do, fluid mechanics, when we're kind of looking at, say, flow through a pipeline, um, we have like mm-hmm. a set of equations to calculate like pressure drop for specific velocities if it's like laminar flow. And then if it's turbulent flow, you use like a second set of equations for that. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of trying to analogize that with gravity as a whole, where obviously we have like Newton's conceptualization of gravity that kind of works for everyday life when we're mm. here on Earth. It works for like solar system scale. It works for a certain scale, but when it gets to higher scales, like of course, in this case of like galaxy clusters, we find that things don't necessarily hold true then. And that's mm. kind of why we have to start invoking dark matter. And then also in like the quantum scale, we also see that like our mm. current model of gravity also doesn't work on those scales. So I kind of had this thought just based on my own ex- experiences is it an outlandish thought or maybe a thought that has been looked into and has been like scientifically disproven of gravity kind of behaving where it has this phase transition where on one scale you have a certain set of equations that govern gravity and then at a separate scale you have a phase transition where you have to use a different set of like models or equations for gravity as opposed to it like invoking dark dark matter if that question makes sense oh
1: so so basically they're saying whether there's some sort of Formalism, where you could explain away uh, these observations without making without invoking the presence of dark matter. Yes, what you mean? Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. Like I was saying, uh, if you want to invoke the presence of dark matter, you need to use general relativity, which is Einstein's um, equations, right? The Einstein field equations, which tell you how mass bends spacetime and how spacetime tells mass to move and uh, everything kind of trickles down from the Einstein equations. But there's people working on alternative hypotheses. Uh, oh, I don't have that slide, I think. I had I have that slide somewhere else. Uh, there's people working on alternative hypotheses which don't consider, which say that we don't need dark matter. One of this is called uh, modified Newtonian dynamics. It's called MOND and there, you know, there's people working on these alternative theories where they try to say that, look, we can explain these observations without dark matter. But up to date, uh, all these alternative ideas have struggled to explain all the uh, crucial astronomical observations that need to be explained. Um, for example, you know, some of these models they can explain how fast galaxies move or how fast galaxies rotate without using dark matter. But most of these, they really struggle to reproduce gravitational lensing they really struggle to produce the effects that we see in lensing without the you know without adding in extra mass so you know i i'd like to people i'd like to think that it's good that people are exploring these ideas but up to date in the field um all these ideas they struggle to reproduce uh one or you know more of these astronomical observations, which we think has to be satisfied by any model um, that you want to take seriously. You know, for example, another one of these observations would be the cosmic microwave background, um, right? The static you see on your TV. Um, it's it's sort of what it's one of the primary evidences for the Big Bang. And, you know, one of the co-authors in our paper He, he George Smoot, so he actually is from the U.S., and so he was the Nobel Prize winner for working on the cosmic microwave background in 2004. And any model, any any, any cosmological model needs to be able to explain uh, observations like this. So it's, you know, some of these alternative ideas without dark matter, they really struggle to do so. Uh, But, you know, people are still working on it
6: interesting awesome thank you so much for the answers and i look forward to hopefully hearing more
1: from you in these uh rooms right yeah yeah thanks thanks a lot
0: yeah thank you um rolf i know you've been waiting for a long time actually i'm sorry my ptr i think got messed up in between rolf and then uh john do you, do no, you still have a no question problem.
7: Yeah, no problem. I'm patient. I've got time. <laughs> um, great talk. Thank you. Uh, um, yeah, thanks. A lot. Amruth. Am I saying it right? Yes. Yes. Um, first, quick real quick about Mond. Uh, I've listened to these different theories. I think to 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 defend the alternative theories, I think you would agree that dark matter also still has gaps and is not a complete explanation for all the different observations. Right. So each of the different theories has problems there is no one you know perfect solution as far as i understand it is that correct
1: yeah yeah uh, that's right that's right uh, it has problems as well mm. uh and you know like yeah. this lensing thing so we which we just resolved so it's just the problems right, it has right. that yes. people people think that the severity of these problems aren't as severe as the other models. So that's why most scientists subscribe mm, yeah. to dark matter, but definitely, you know, all these, all these models are problems. Yeah.
7: One of the, one of the things I don't like about Mond is because even though some of the predictions appear to correctly, max match, match observation in some cases better than dark matter theories, the problem they have is they don't have an actual explanation for what's the causality of it. They just say it just does. The equations mm-hmm. fit. So as you get further out in the galaxy, the, the, the dynamics change, but there is no physical explanation. It's only a mathematical mm-hmm. equation. And I hate things that don't have an underlying physical <laughs> reason, <Yeah>. you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you, you what and I like about standards. dark matter <laughs> is it makes sense, you know? <laughs> yeah. Right. 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 So my, I have a couple, couple of questions which the first would be axions versus wimps i might have missed if you'd explained it but if what is the basic difference and why do people are you running into resistance because people don't like the axion theory and what would be their resistance to it
1: yeah yeah we you know it's uh that's a nice question because that's kind of more important for science than the result itself how the rest of the society perceives it right And we're we're getting a lot of pushback, and it's not just us. So axions have gotten a lot of pushback in the field for for quite some time now. And this is really the case for almost any new idea that kind of tries to overthrow the existing paradigm. Um, And, you know, like how Einstein tried to overthrow Newton's laws. And this is really, uh, yeah, it's it's really common. And, you know, he even got this resistance from one of the referees. Uh, for nature astronomy and you know the referee all his comments all his referee comments were on the introduction of the paper so it wasn't on the science or the research it was on the introduction where we said that look the uh, wimp dark matter model the wimp paradigm has faced a lot of issues and they have yet to be detected and then the referee insisted that they don't have any of these problems and they can be you can you can solve all these issues so he claimed that wimp dark matter doesn't have any problems and you know that's just ridiculous because in the introduction you just do a literature review right you don't there's right, no science sure. there so and what? And in, even so the editor is and the other the two difference? referees they, yeah <laughs> no they i mean i was just Could saying you that tell they, us really they, quickly
7: yeah sorry yeah no, they
1: sure they, they even the editors and referees they thought it was ridiculous that you know this referee is acting like this but that is really the common reaction than the rarity
7: so uh, uh, the, for the sake of laymen here, including myself, is there any way you could really quickly just explain the basic difference between axions and WIMPs? Uh, yeah, Unless well, you already covered are... that, I, mu- I might have missed it.
1: Oh, sorry. Yeah. I mean, if you missed the, the first few slides, the w- WIMPs are just massive, right? They're weakly interacting massive particles. So the, the mass of the particles is much, much larger. It's predicted to be much larger, much heavier, you know, for example, than a proton, like tens of ten or a hundred times heavier than a proton. While axions, they're thought to be very, very, very light. So they're called ultra light particles. So their masses are tiny, you know, incredibly tiny, way tinier than an I electron.
7: See. I see. Yeah. yeah. Okay, interesting. Well, that does kind of lead to my final question. And you don't have to spend long on this, but this is more of a... Bigger bigger question, and you briefly touched on people basing everything on relativity. We know that the relativity equations work, but the underlying, expl- going back to explanations again, is this concept of space-time. And I personally have always found that as a dubious basis, uh, which, and, and in a way to me, the presence of dark matter might ultimately explain what we used to call Uh, space time what if dark matter is the real fabric of space almost like a medium in which all these events occur and the very reason that things attract and bend is due to space time it is the fundamental fabric of space or you know or close enough for our purposes to be fundamental and then maybe that becomes the explanation and we can kind of rethink what our terminology of space time and maybe ultimately dispense with it Do do you have any thoughts
1: on that yeah no i mean that's an interesting way to look at it for sure uh and really you know the big breakthroughs in understanding uh, for humanity as a whole right humanity's understanding of the universe these big breakthroughs come when you when you do away with with assumptions that you make uh and you know things that you think are true but then they actually aren't and then this might be one of those cases yeah where you know we don't really know what space-time is right it's a mathematical construct um that we use to explain what yeah we, definitely uh, we yeah. don't actually you know measure something or we don't we never there's no such there's no evidence for the existence of space time so so it's very interesting yeah you know there maybe there's some hypothesis or theory that comes out where people try to explain observations making this assumption that space time is dark matter um but it, I, I think you know what you're saying is how science should proceed uh, you know, asking questions like that instead of trying to dig a you know deeper hole down down something very specific because <laughs> that isn't yeah. gonna give you uh, the global understanding that you need to really understand how the universe works and which I think you know is is the pitfall in modern science nowadays. Everyone's digging a very deep hole and into something very very specific, but you know you you need to we need to have a breadth of knowledge instead of depth of knowledge. I think. Uh, But yeah, you know, uh, it's interesting and I think people should definitely look at it like that. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for the interesting question.
0: Okay, thank you so much. Um, John, you have the last question, uh, if that's okay.
8: (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, that's my honor. Yeah, thank you so much. Actually, I have a couple of questions uh, regarding dark matter. See, when we Talk about dark matter, yeah, dark matter. Mm -hmm. So if dark matter follows the rules of gravity, Mm -hmm. are we supposed to think dark matter itself although we cannot see them? Can we uh, imagine them as interglacial sea cloud or as dark matter stars? Or they form galaxies, dark matter galaxies, or do they see like a, a form, see like a just see basically diffuse see like a just hydrogen uh, molecules uh, uh, inside the uh, the universe. Mm-hmm. So how do we <laughs> yeah. see? How do we feel see like a see for example uh, in our galaxy, our say, visible galaxy, do we have a parallel see like a Dark matter galaxy, see uh, within us, or it, it just for mm. me is difficult to to yeah. imagine because see when we talk of dark matter, mm. what dark matter means means mm. light can penetrate through it, mm-hmm. so that means it's it's dark matter. But right now you tell me that dark matter actually can form see those kind of huge mass and then. Have gravity uh gravitational you know, mm. uh, uh uh lens effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That means it must be a uh, see like a huge mass, right? Mm-hmm. In order to have this see like a uh see uh, yes. a yes. huge concentrated mass. Yes.
1: Yes.
8: Uh, in order to 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 uh to 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 have this uh, lens effect.
1: Mm. Yeah. No, you know that that's that's the. You, this is just a stream of uh, brilliant questions and comments. Um, it's everything you said. Uh, you know, there's dark stars. The entire galaxy is made of dark matter, dark matter galaxies. Uh, there's clouds of dark matter. And then there's dark matter going through you and me right now. You know, particles of dark matter whizzing about in your room. And you're right to, you know, to sufficiently bend light. Like what we see, you know, when these galaxies bend light, you need a lot of dark matter. And that's why, you know, we think the universe is 85% of dark matter. Um, The current understanding of dark matter and how it's distributed is that it is concentrated at the center of galaxies. There's a lot more dark matter at the center of galaxies and then it smoothly falls off as you go outwards. You know, it reduces in density as you go outwards. Um, So it's pretty much everything you said exactly, Uh, you know, you it's just dark matter everywhere. And we think it's concentrated at the centers of galaxies. Um, And then that's why when you look at galaxies or galaxy clusters, you see this effect. And you know, if you look kind of like an empty patch of sky, um, you wouldn't really see much. But yeah,
8: So, okay, so if within our uh, solar system, we have uh, lots of dark matters, but uh, the problems, see, when we calculate our solar system, see, like, uh, see the Mars movement, Mars mass, uh, sun's Mm -hmm. movement, sun's uh, mass, Mm -hmm. we actually, we don't consider those dark matters
1: effect, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we we don't because the density of the dark matter is still so low that you know the the effect that the distribution of dark matter would have on these orbits uh for example in our solar system is very very small compared to the effect from other objects uh, nearby like you know other planets or other moons so if you wanted to be able to see this if you wanted to be able to measure this effect you'd need very good equipment which you know none of our technology has the precision uh, to distinguish so that's why you know people don't do it uh because you just can't see the effects mm-hmm. because yeah. see in my see my understanding is the
8: dark the concept that come out is because see uh when people measure the movement of those stars at the edge of the galaxy and uh, at the center of the galaxy and find the, see the stars movements, uh, actually the, uh, move, surround, move, surround the uh, or orbiting, surround moves surrounded the orbiting surrounded the center of the uh, galaxy. It's yeah. pretty much the same. So that's why they see, okay, there must be a see some kind of see like a, a dark matter See mm-hmm. is uh, uh, at the edge of this uh, uh, galaxy, our galaxy. Mm-hmm. And so that Make them see like move faster or mm-hmm. so. But uh, as you see, if you see, but uh, most of the dark matters, if most of the dark matters actually see is concentrated in the center of the galaxy or galaxy, so would that contradict to those uh, uh, original thinking that there are more uh, dark matters outside at the edge of the uh, galaxy?
1: So with the with respect to the observations of these stars orbiting uh, the galaxies and then you know rotating around even at the edges of the galaxies their speeds of you know their their orbital speeds how fast they rotate the galaxy it only depends on how much mass uh, how much total mass the galaxy has inside so there doesn't actually need to be dark matter Or there doesn't need to be a lot of dark matter at the edge of galaxies to make the stars go that fast. Uh, It's kind of like centrifugal force, right? Where the mass at the center is what determines how fast these stars are orbiting. Um, So there's no real way for us to tell uh, whether there's more mass at the edge than at the center. Uh, And then, you know, all the observations right now, they suggest that there's most mass at the center and then less and less as you go out. Uh, But all these observations, like the rotation speeds of stars and galaxies, um, they're determined by the total mass of the galaxy and not the uh, distribution itself. The only thing that probes the distribution is lensing. So that's why gravitational lensing is a very nice tool, because that one really depends on, you know, how much mass you have exactly at all places, at all positions.
8: Mm. So another, thing, like
1: uh, I read it
8: somewhere they talk about the uh, fourth dimension. So if we have a fourth dimension, would that be say, like a dark matter is within the fourth dimension, so we cannot see them, but they are there?
1: mm mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, there's possible? a lot of um, yeah. Well, no, there's a lot of hypothetical um hypotheses that have been put out there, and axions are a prediction of string theory, right? So string theory has like 26 dimensions or something like that. Um, and then we don't even know what goes on in these dimensions. Everything is a mathematical construct. Uh, the only thing we know is that our current universe is four-dimensional uh, after Einstein's theories. So th- that's why it's called space-time. So the three dimensions of space uh, in the x, y, z directions, and then the dim- the one dimension of time, the arrow of time, which goes from past to future, which we also don't understand why, really. Um, but So that's 4D, right? That's already space-time uh, but you know there's theories that say that dark matter could be some kind of unknown force in five dimension in the fifth dimension or the sixth dimension and then there's there's a lot of ideas out there the real trick is to be able to come up with an observation or experiment which lets you uh, test this idea um, that's the hard part and uh, people haven't come up with how to do that yet so all of these ideas are just, um, they remain hypotheses until until a good test can be, uh, people can come up with.
0: Yeah, thank you. That's actually Perfect. an interesting point. Yeah, thank you, John, uh, that I wanted to ask, like, in the end. But um, So what technological invention do you wish for, basically, in order to you know, to to continue with the work and have like hard evidence. Is there something, you know, you could wish for, but it's like still unrealistic? Thank you.
1: Um, Well, yeah, you know, that uh, there's a lot of things I want <laughs> with technological advances. I'm sure we all do. Um, But, you know, one of the things would be just better, better telescopes. And, you know, you look, you stare at a part of the sky for a long, long, long time you have like an entire video you know rather than just images from telescopes you have like a whole video of what's happening well let's say you know if you look at a galaxy or galaxy cluster that would be incredible because that you know we don't have videos of the uh you know these kinds of lensing events because these observations are so so costly so expensive um you know equipment-wise to make uh, but you know who knows maybe sometime in the future um technology would be so good that you'd be able to really see the sky at every point, every, every point in time, uh, and then see what's happening, uh, at each, you know, at each point in time, that would be incredible to see, I suppose, you know, that's one, one of the things that would be nice.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, um, yeah, that, that would be amazing. I, I can imagine that it would be amazing to look at and, um, yeah, hopefully we'll get there. Do you think like quantum computing or something like that would help or make it like wouldn't that make any sense or neuromorphic computing to basically increase capabilities of computing power and make it cheaper and, you know.
1: Yeah, Um. yeah, sure. You know, that would help a lot uh, in doing simulations, but right now, at least, um, we're less bound by computational capacity than observations. We just, um, you know, we just don't have enough observations. Or, you know, maybe we do, but we just don't see it. Like how the answer stares you in the face, but you don't see it. Um, you know, maybe you need something like AI or machine learning or or some kind of artificial intelligence to put together all these, you know, wide range of observations and come up with some coherent idea. Uh, right, our human brains can only process so much so maybe maybe you know we're just limited by how big our brain is or um or by our imagination and maybe it needs you know with these things like quantum computing stuff like that we, these things would definitely you know have a breakthrough uh but uh probably the the bigger breakthrough would come from having better observations um you know so something to add is instead of all these things if we just spent our money to, you know, look for aliens or something like that, um, you can just ask the aliens what dark matter is. You don't have to find out for yourself. You can just learn from them.
0: <laughs> okay. So cheating. <laughs> no, I'm cheating. It's not cheating
1: if you get help from the smarter kid down your neighborhood. You know? <laughs> it's sharing.
0: <That's> <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm joking. Um Yeah. That, that would be amazing. And, yeah, it's it's interesting what uh you know computing power and AI did in the biological field or protein research, and coming up mm. with new protein foldings and um, new ways of uh, mm. looking at these problems and inventions, and it's accelerating pretty fast. So, yeah, it would be yeah it would be really interesting to see if so, they can so come up you... with actually something new.
1: Right, right, so is your um you're working in uh neuroscience right do you do you have some perspective on oh. what research in your field, whether it would have ties to any of these computing
0: well, yeah, I used uh, a lot that... for like mental health type of uh, research mm. mental state research right. uh especially language and so on, so yeah, I used machine learning a lot um But I think, yeah, I think I always think we have so much data, like probably neuroscience a little bit the opposite or in biology right now. We have a lot of labs producing a lot of data. Of course, we could have always more, but I think what we lack is something stitching it all together to make sense out of it and then actually developing new therapies and so on that actually work for people and um that would be more personalized we can get where we would need more data is like an N of one data like that's a new thing it's like you know to have from that person throughout their life more data so we can have more personalized treatments in the future and preventions I think that type of data in the future will help a lot of people as long as we put it in the right context. And the thing is, AI, but it has to be combined with humans because AI can also make really dumb assumptions. So can we, <laughs> right. so we right. kind of have to mm. still help each other, I think. Mm. Um, yeah, but in that field, I think it will do a lot. But it's probably a little bit different because, you know, in your field, you know we see kind of behavior i mean that's kind of what you see with the galaxies you know we see behavior outcome and differences Mm -hmm. i don't know if you can really compare that that and protein folding there's only so many ways i guess you can Mm -hmm. fold those things so i don't know if you can really compare it one to one
1: right 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 that that's really interesting though um
0: yeah we had a speaker that was really interesting. She was working on a type of machine learning computing uh for chemistry, and so on that you could basically ask why and she published that there it was a preprint on the stage when she presented it was really interesting and a really interesting talk or and they made the company out of it because I think that's what we need to to really make sense out of how um sometimes, you know, these machine learning models come up with a result and causality, you know.
1: Right, right, right. Yeah.
0: so Once that works, then we're, we're going to be good, I think.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's for sure. <laughs>
3: Yeah, hey, I got one more quick question if I could, Katharina.
0: Yeah, it's Emerald's um call for me for sure.
3: <laughs> or Emerald, if you want yeah. to call it sweet. Yeah, yeah. So uh this of is kind of, this may be like a little bit off like topic, but it still has to do with kind of like the wave uh potential wave uh nature of dark matter. So yeah. uh positing that it is moving in like a uh in some type of wave type of nature um its movement is affected by gravity so and it and it itself has its own like gravitational pull Mm -hmm. so we know that gravity can also move as waves Mm -hmm. so knowing that is it possible that like colliding, like large colliding masses of like, um, or I guess maybe potential gravitational waves be affected or are created by colliding masses of dark matter versus the, the normal way. I guess that's part one, then part two, uh, knowing that gravitational waves can affect matter, is that a potential way to detect dark matter by using the gravitational like we can localize possibly know there's not like a black hole or Mm -hmm. or neutron stars or or any massive thing colliding to create gravitational waves if that's like a potential way to to met to measure it
1: you know what i'm saying yeah no uh you know i can't believe you know the questions you guys are asking again because you know these are very you guys are like all astronomers or something i'm gonna i've got to be getting punked here <laughs> you know no one here is a, is a is a general audience but everyone here is like a specialist astronomer um yeah uh, gravitational waves get affected by dark matter that's one thing and uh, you know if they're produced by you know whatever source like the collision of black holes or neutron stars um and then they get affected in the same way that these uh, light gets affected for lensed images, but uh, you know the collision of dark, two dark matter—I don't know—you know, you know balls—that um, hasn't been studied. I think I've never come across that. And definitely, you know, when people work on gravitational waves, what they can do is they try to constrain uh, what kind of objects collided, or they well they try to infer. And then they say, look, it's a neutron star and a black hole with this mass and this mass uh, and this far away. And that, that's what they do. But I've never seen any work for, you know, saying that it's a collision between dark matter. Um, that would be interesting to be studied, I suppose. I've never never seen that. but um, And probably it would have different signatures. Uh, and I have a feeling that, you know, with the current observations of gravitational waves we have, it's probably a bit difficult to, to constrain, um, but you know I don't I've never seen any work on that so that's uncharted territory. But it definitely sounds like a, a brilliant idea to explore.
0: Yeah, the only thing I remember we had the uh, speaker here that talked about uh, peaks in dark matter. Like his hypothesis was that around a black hole. If there is a star and a dragging star, basically Mm -hmm. there's a difference. One gets sucked up and the other one doesn't, but there's a a difference in the drag. And Mm -hmm. that is because he hypothesized that there's a peak of dark matter around these black holes. And Mm -hmm. that's, um, that, that reflects like the drag of the second star. I have to look it up because I'm you know I'm not expressing it correctly. I don't know if you read that paper.
1: Um it sounds familiar but I I don't think I read anything like that recently. Um but you know I I could imagine just based on um it, it's probably an idea simply based on how how much energy is being released because there are some ideas that dark matter particles can Sort of annihilate, like how uh, matter and antimatter annihilate. Um, but that's that's the only way I can see of think of how they would be able to say something uh, about the dark matter there, I guess. Uh, but I, you know, I haven't, I haven't read this paper, so uh, uh, I'm not too sure.
0: So, mm. yeah. okay, yeah, I have to look it up better. Um, we um...
1: right right
0: yeah but I have to look it up better I've, but I can share then the paper with you
1: yes please yeah I know I'd be it. interested to take a look
0: yeah
7: um, makes me think of something else or are we running out of time
0: uh, what, are, what are you thinking of I, I was also thinking about you know the the previous talk with that we had with you know where they did the double slit experiment with photons but not like they did the double slit in time basically and kind of showed that uh, light is more wave and then they also showed you know how it was kind of an interesting very interesting material science also reflecting mm. like how fast the materials they use could um, detect these um, interferences and so on but that was also really interesting because you talk a lot that you know, this, the the representation of waves basically. So I thought that was an interesting relation there, but maybe it's just me because I don't know enough.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think mean, it's uh, you know, all I
7: agree. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, so this I mean. whole uh, you know, particle wave like thing, um we're seeing it in all sorts of objects. And that's what happens with wave dark matter as well, right? Because it's particles, but because they're so light, um, they show this wave-like behavior is what we call the wave-particle duality. And um, yeah, you know, we've always seen it in laboratory experiments on Earth, but we've never really seen it in astronomical scales. And uh, this is one of the few cases where you can see the... These effects on you know large scales, like spanning millions of light years, billions of light years. So it's very interesting to see that you know at these scales, as well as you know inside a room on Earth in, in a lab.
7: What I do found you the paper. <laughs> oh,
1: nice.
0: really? I, I share, <laughs> I'm sharing it in the chat. Oh,
1: thank you. Yeah, um, yeah. It's
0: indirect evidence of dark matter density spikes around stellar mass black holes. So, um, yeah, the, it has been suggested for a long time that there would form a density spike around the black hole, but there was never really promising evidence. And he that you know, mathematical basically model that fits really well the data they collected with the between dark matter and the companion stars can satisfy explain the abnormally fast orbital decays in two right. binaries.
1: Right, right. Yeah. So this anyway. is just probably from the um the gravitational effect of the uh, the orbiting. Yeah,
0: exactly. So you have like two yeah. orbiting stars, and one gets dragged,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and that the data, this dragging data, basically reflects. Right. Really this well. is in-
1: I haven't really seen this paper before. Um, and you know the authors are also from hong kong it looks yes. like yes so yeah yeah brilliant.
0: he presented uh, <laughs> uh-huh. Men uh-huh. H- oh they presented, presented it in here, in here? Mm-hmm, Yes. Oh,
1: wow that's that's yeah. really cool
0: i have the powerpoint oh. and everything then yeah,
1: oh, can, right. can you share them to me because i'd be yeah, interested. yeah yeah i can share you know, yeah. i'll, I'll send that.
0: them to you
1: <laughs> Thanks,
0: <yeah. laughs> okay, <sure. laughs> sorry rolf please go ahead and and then i think we let almost go <laughs>
7: Okay, yeah, just a quick, quick thing that it made me think of was frame dragging, because he was saying the stars get dragged. And I keep occasionally coming back to what, what is the cause of frame dragging right around the Earth, if you're familiar with that. And the question would be, could that be another thing that could be explained by dark matter? The same way we have a dark matter halo around a, a galaxy, could there be small-scale dark matter differences in density and so on? And could there be a bit of a, uh, what do you call it, um, a differential rotation that is actually a lag effect? Like the, the entrainment is the word I'm looking for. This goes back mm-hmm. to even the 19th century. They had theories mm-hmm. about could the local environment around earth be somewhat entrained and dragged? Mm-hmm. And they turn, describe it in different terms, but now since relativity we call that frame dragging. Well, what mm-hmm. if it is the quote-unquote medium of the dark matter that is partially entrained by it? Rotating Earth, for example, causes frame
1: drag. Right, right. No, that, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I've come across some of these uh, ideas proposed by people, and um, I've never come across this one where they try to consider the frame dragging um, due to being from dark matter. Um, You know, I I don't see why not, uh, but I also haven't seen work which quantifies the level. Of the effect you'd see, so that would be very interesting to see yeah, if someone really made hard. a prediction. Um, yeah, to to yeah. See, I wonder you know. if it
7: makes it hard when it's on a smaller scale. Right? It definitely does. Um, it definitely does. Yeah, yeah. it's
1: it, it is very it is very difficult. That's one of the problems because the density of the dark matter is still so low that um, you need like really really precise instrumentation, and uh, you know human technology just isn't there. So that's really one of the reasons I think it's very, it's very difficult. And that's why, you know, we need to look at these massive objects um, far out in space, like, you know, entire galaxies or entire galaxy clusters. Yeah, definitely. That's I'd, I'd, I'd say that's, you know, the primary reason why. Why we haven't, you know, people haven't looked into this.
7: It reminds me of, um, there's a guy called Edward Dowdy who questioned the results of, um, light bending around the sun. He 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 was doing these experiments with microwave radiation passing by the sun and his tests showed that the, the, the curves of bending do not match, uh, conventional relativity. In other words, it's not entirely by gravitational that he believed it was partial bending caused by the plasma limb around the sun. Mm. And I always thought, well, that's an interesting idea. Could we test a comparison between a a star that has a large plasma corona versus a planet, a large body that does not have a large atmosphere like that and do a comparison? So if you Mm. could do it, you know, shine light past Jupiter and see if it follows the correct Einsteinian bending versus say the sun. And could you then conclude something from that? But again, I've got a feeling that smaller bodies like Jupiter, you can't easily do those measurements, is my guess, but I don't know.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, you're, you're right. I think the effect would just be so uh, minute that it would be hard to hard to do. But, um, um, you know, I can see how the, the plasma would also kind of refract the light uh, causing you know, additional bending or taking yeah. some of the bending away, um, but you know, yeah, you know, a lot of lot of really interesting things that we could test, but yeah, we're limited by the the technology. And again, this one, I suppose, is one of the one of the cases where we just can't um, easily distinguish. Yeah.
0: Well, <laughs> thank you so much, and uh, thanks for answering up this question in the chat. Sorry that we kind of missed that before no and yeah. well thank you so much for this wonderful presentation and for ask uh answering so patiently all of our questions I really appreciate it and um yeah i hope you enjoyed it and we for sure did this was an amazing discussion
1: oh, yeah thank you so much i mean uh, it was incredible to have these discussions it was very nice and the questions were really uh i mean you know i was very surprised by how good these questions were Um, because usually I don't usually get that many (laughs) um, imaginative penetrating questions from the audience like this so it was very very nice for me and you know I'm very happy and thankful that you invited me and uh, and for everyone attending as well Um, yeah yeah
0: yeah no for sure we are very thankful for yeah you're going with it <laughs> with our <laughs> questions from you know this very different ways of thinking backgrounds knowledge levels mm-hmm. um so um yeah, it, yeah you know it it requires also some sort of you know availability to to do that to go with it so yeah thank you that's why it was so much fun and so interesting and uh, yeah maybe you come back one day uh, with updates, and somehow, a lot of more devices are being feeding you a lot of more data and movies
1: <laughs> Yeah, with, <laughs> with another nature paper in ten years. Right? <laughs> yeah, no, you know i'd I'd love to to come back uh, someday if we have if we have something you know interesting we find, and you know, i'm I'm actually interested to attend like some of these talks that you have planned. Um, that I, I was just going through the list of previous talks and then one scheduled for the future. Um, you know, everything sounds interesting, really. Um, I can't believe that, you know, this is done so frequently. How do you manage to find speakers? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it must be so uh, hard. Like, it, it's so hard getting people to agree to talk about something because, you know, everyone likes to say no.
0: <laughs> I I don't know why. It's really funny. Uh, I expect always people to not respond. And a lot of people don't, like I, I just read broadly articles about science in general. And then if it's in my field, of course I read the papers right away. But then if I think it's really interesting, I go and check the paper and then I check, then I just write the authors and like, and then, you know, um, we we also have on Wednesdays, the science news where we kind of discuss these articles. So it makes me also, like I never learned so much since we started this, like this was kind of during COVID times, a little bit unorganized. And then we started our own real club for this and stuff like that. So yeah, since I started this, I never learned so much in my life about all kinds of different um science fields and it's not like you know I explain it well but in my in my brain it makes sense and then I fail when like before I tried to explain what the talk was about and but um yeah we just learn a lot I think and it keeps us interested and um yeah and people nice people like you and so yes and uh People are mostly very nervous about it because to present this way but then it usually works out and uh, and people seem to enjoy it on both sides so that's the ideal situation at least.
1: Yeah, no. Um, you know, uh thanks so much for hosting this thing and and for people coming and um it was very very nice. Yeah, and good. Very happy that I um, that I did it.
0: Enjoy your next interview that you're having. So.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know, it's on um it's on that YouTube channel and they run this page called Universe Today. Um I don't know if you've seen that, but um so it's it's really uh you know, looking forward to that as well. Um but yeah, yeah.
0: That's so exciting, you know, and not just three people around the world are interested in your work but a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, do. no,
1: I mean, we, you know, we think, you know, all most of the science actually comes down to the communication, right? And, and the presentation, if you don't communicate your science, then it's just uh, you haven't had you haven't really had an impact. And so, you know, we at our group and myself, we're, you know, I'm bi- I'm a big fan of Carl Sagan. Um, and, you know, he was the best popularizer of science in general. Again, you know, you should watch or read Cosmos if you guys haven't. And, uh, you know, that 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 really inspires um, after you watch Carl Sagan or even Richard Feynman, you know, when you watch them give talks and then they can really captivate the entire room. And then everyone in the room understands. You just know it. You just know that they do. Uh, When you watch stuff like that, you're like, you know, damn, I want to be like that guy. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I value communication a lot and it's always very nice to have fresh ideas from people outside the field. Um, So it's always very nice.
0: Well, you definitely are following his footsteps because, you know, as I said, um, I felt like it was really good to understand the concepts and so on. So. You're really doing an amazing job, and yeah, we are very curious to hear more from you, and um, yeah, it will be fun if you would come back one day, and I will for sure listen to that interview too, it will be for sure wonderful, and good luck for everything, I hope you get a lot of fun toys that you talked about that you want to have in the future, and a lot of funding, and... um, yeah we'll just uh, expand our knowledge truly about the universe so that's really exciting so thank you
1: yeah yeah no thanks a lot Kat.
0: (laughs) okay and thanks everyone for coming uh asking questions um it makes the discussion so much more interesting um and um yeah i hope to hear you all again soon we'll have a science newsroom tomorrow so um yeah, come for that if you would like. Thank you.
3: Hey, real quick, uh, Universe Today, is that Fraser Kane?
1: Yeah, it is. It Man,
3: is. I love that channel. That's so cool. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, no, me too. <laughs> I, I was really excited when he reached out uh, and said, look, uh, you know, do you want to do an interview? I was like, hell yeah. <laughs> nice. Thanks. Yeah, you know, and if you guys are interested, um, um, it's. I think it's on Friday. Uh, Friday morning, I think. Um, yeah, yeah.
0: Perfect. We don't have uh, uh anything planned on Friday, so let's all go and listen to that. <laughs> <Wonderful>. <laughs>
4: Sounds good.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'll. I can send out just if you tweet about it, I'll retweet it, and then people will see it
1: yeah thing. yeah no i'll get the uh exact time and and maybe a link from Fraser, and then uh and then get back to you
0: wonderful okay that's a wonderful um ending so i'll close the room in three two one bye everyone thank you thanks so.